Well, James has been talking with us last week and now into this week about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of God and will return. And last week, James told us, while we're waiting to be patient, be patient. My wife always says, never pray for patience because God might try and give it to you. But there's, a, there's an old expression. We'll see how you like it. It goes like this. Patience is a virtue. Seize it if you can. Seldom found in a woman. The women are like, oh, no, no, no. And never found in a man. <laughs> so patience is a very, very difficult thing. It's not easy for us. It's, in fact, just thinking about patience. It sounds very, very passive to us, yet James, as we talked about last week, seems to be advocating an active patience. In other words, while we are waiting for God, while we are waiting for Jesus to return, we are to hold on tightly to our faith. We are not to retreat, even if we are suffering, if we are unsure, or if we are afraid. Now, there are many words we could use to describe this uh, next phase that we're going into. We could say that we are to endure. We could say that we are to stand firm. We could say that we are to press on. But tonight, we're really going to try and focus on the word persevere. Persevere. To persevere is to for us as followers of Jesus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're glad that you're with us here tonight. But, but to persevere is to, is to determine internally to, to resolve to continue on the right course until the end, until we either meet Jesus through death or through second coming, despite the difficulty. So I looked up in the dictionary what the dictionary says for persevere, and it says to continue in a course of action even in the face of difficulty. So that I kind of get. Or with little or no prospect of success. Well, if James read that, he would say that was clearly written by someone who does not have the hope of the second coming. That is clearly written by someone who does not have the hope of Jesus Christ because we do have a prospect of success. And so the title of our message tonight is The Lord is Coming, Persevere. Now, I want us to keep a verse in the back of our mind all night tonight. It goes all the way back to James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 12 says this, Blessed is the man who endures temptation... For, or a lot of times for in the, in the Bible, you could substitute the word because. For or because when he has been approved. What does that mean? Well, some of you have heard to say when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So last week, when we were talking about patience, James exposed a real weakness in the church. And let's just go back to James 5.9, which we covered last week. He said, do not grumble against 
one another. I love that word grumble. It's one of those words, if you just say it over and over again, it grumble, 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 grumble. It's like the word murmur, 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 murmur. It just sounds like what it is. He says, do not grumble against one another, brethren. So he's talking to the people in the churches that he's writing to. Lest you be condemned or lest you be judged, behold, where's the judge? Is the judge far away? No, the judge is standing at the door. So James sets the goal out before us. The goal is to, preserve, is to persevere despite difficult circumstances, to stay on the right course and maintain the right course all the way to the end, and to help us, what he does tonight is he gives us some examples. He gives us some visuals to not only say this is what these people did, but to motivate us by grace to follow in their footsteps. So he says, verse 10, My brethren, take the prophets, and talking about the Old Testament prophets, who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. So last week, he talked about the patient farmer. Remember, they, they plant the seed, then they wait for the early rains, and then they tend the land, and then they wait for the late rains, and then there's the harvest. So he moves from the patient farmer, and now he actually moves to real people, to people who persevered in tremendous difficulty. So in the prophets, instead of grumbling about life, they continued in the faith. And how did they do it? He tells us how they did it right here. He says, they spoke in the name of the Lord. And, and the word example in the scriptures is very, very important. It can be an ungodly example. And when we see ungodly examples in the scriptures, we don't want to do that. I said when we studied First and Second Kings, it was really, it's a really a very easy book to teach. You, you read what one guy does and you're like, I don't think we should do that. And then you read what another guy does, and you're like, oh, that's good. We'll, we'll do that. So you have the ungodly examples that we should avoid and the godly examples that we should imitate. So the prophets, despite the suffering they experienced, despite the, experience, the persecution they experienced, still sought to proclaim the word of the Lord, still sought to proclaim the glory of God. Now, it's interesting when you hear people talk about our country. And if you're watching from another country, sorry, this is what they say about our country. They'll say that every once in a while you hear someone say this is a Christian nation or this used to be a Christian nation. But people suffering from their faith, for their faith, has been really all throughout the history of our nation. And admittedly, it's worse now than it was even 10 years ago. And who knows what the next 10 years is going to bring. And Israel was supposed to be Yahweh's nation. Yet the prophets routinely suffered at the hands of the Israelites. And the reason they suffered at the hands of the Israelites was because they told them what God said. And a lot of times what God said was, I'm going to call you out on your sin. I'm going to call you out to stop living the way that you're living. And so we think of just a few examples of, of prophets who suffered. There's so many, but I just thought of a few quickly. I thought of Elijah. 
I thought of Isaiah. I thought of Ezekiel. I thought of, of Daniel and, and, and so many, many more. But perhaps none so much as Jeremiah. That is a guy who really, really suffered. And again, they suffered at the hands of the people who said they were the people of God. It's funny that, you know, in the New Testament, people, the, the, some of the people were like, oh, well, we wouldn't have been those guys. We wouldn't have persecuted them. And, and the Lord's like, yeah, you would have. You would, you would have. And so the same is true today. It's a great way if you're a pastor, if you, if you want to suffer persecution, if you want to have people leave your church, just talk about sin. Just talk about judgment. And people will leave. Why? You say, why would they leave? You know, sometimes if people will say to me, oh, Pastor Jim, today's message was very, very convicting. And I will always say this to them. Was I mean? And, the, and they'll, I guess they're being nice. They usually say, no, you weren't being mean. That's, uh, that's fine. If I'm delivering the message that God had it delivered, I don't want to deliver it in a mean fashion. And, and so, you know, most people who come to church, well, I don't know if it's true to say this anymore. You could say this years ago, would say that they want the word of the Lord. But can I be honest? They really don't. It seems most people now who come to church or watch church online, if you certainly listen to the most you know, popular speak, uh, preachers, they want life to be easier. They want life to be the way they want it to be. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said this, Isaiah 30, verse 10. He said, Who say to the seers, say to the prophets, Do not see... And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Don't tell us the truth. Whatever you do, don't tell us the truth. Speak to us smooth things. Speak to us easy things. Some versions say, speak to us pleasant things. Another version says, speak to us flattering things. Tell us how wonderful we are. Don't tell us that we're sinners. Prophesy deceits. Another version says, prophesy to us. Tell us illusions. Basically, would you just lie to us? Don't tell us what God says. Tell us what we want to hear. And I've had people say to me, I don't really want to go to church to hear what God has to say. I know they say that. I, you're like, come on now. I've had people say to me, well, I'm Christian, but I don't believe the Bible. I do it like a Kramer on them. I'm like, what? What are you, what are you talking about? You, you're a Christian, but you don't believe the Bible? A lot of people will say to you, and they're perfectly upfront and honest about it, I want to go to church to hear what I want to hear, not what God has to say in his word. And it's hard to get people to admit it. They have other kinds of reasons. But if they don't like a pastor telling them the truth, 
they'll leave for some reason. You know, the guy in the parking lot looked at me cross-eyed or I didn't like the coffee or I didn't like the seat that I got or, you know, something was was wrong. I didn't I didn't like this or I, I didn't like that. But actually, what a lot of people do is the scripture tells us they go to places where people will tickle their ears. Kind of like being a little kid. Tickle, 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 tickle. I hear what I like to hear. I hear smooth things. James is teaching us that, that speaking the truth, we are to speak the truth in love, the Apostle Paul told us, but speaking the truth, doing God's will, will often lead to suffering and criticism from those around you, even those who call themselves Christian. Yet God calls us all to represent him well, not to back away, not to be a jerk, but not to back away, but to persevere, to stand firm and wait for the time when he himself will intervene, maybe sooner rather than later, or maybe it will be at the second coming. You know, it's interesting, the prophets, they're very interesting to to study and we're in them for a while, and we'll be going back to them uh, maybe in a, in a few months. But at times, the prophets were in people's faces with the anger of the Lord. Other times, they were pleading with them, please listen. But it's a very important to remember that uh, James 1.20, if you remember, said this, for the wrath or the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so when the prophets spoke, it was, if they spoke with anger, it was the anger of God. It was not the anger of man. Now, sometimes we talk about having righteous anger. And this is something I would caution you to be very, very careful about. There are certain times, I think, when we should have righteous anger. We hear about some terrible thing that happens or some sin that committed and, 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 and it just our, our blood is boiling and, and we're just so angry that that would happen. The scripture says, be angry, but do not sin. But then sometimes you'll hear people say, well, somebody did this to me and I have such incredible righteous anger. Be very careful about that one. That might just mean you're angry. It might not be the anger of God. I find that personally when I'm, when I'm angry about something that has happened to myself, it's rarely, if ever, righteous anger. But when it is towards other people, then I tend to more, I'm more prone to experience the righteous anger of God. You know, it's an interesting study in the prophets to see how they stood up to sin and any injustices that happened to people. The prophets, I love those guys, they would even stand up to kings. They would even stand up to nations. I was just reading this morning about John the Baptist, who was the greatest of all the prophets, Jesus said, and and he, he said to King Herod, hey, you got your brother's wife and that's wrong, and he lost his head for it. And so you got to really admire those guys. And while the prophets did speak out against sin, 
it's important to remember the way they did it. And, and this is something I think in our current political environment, we want to have a prophetic ministry for sure. We want to speak the truth. We want to call out things that are, that are wrong when, when they are clearly wrong and disagree with the word of God. But the prophets in general took the middle road between pacifism and violence. They, 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 they were not like, well, we just kind of hope that people get it. Nope, they weren't like that. But they weren't inviting people to, to violence. Even when they would speak against kings, they would stop short of calling people to violence and to revolution. What did they do? They did something that I think that we need to do. They called people to the ways of the Lord. Now, you say, well, so what if they just do good stuff? I mean, obviously doing good stuff is better than doing bad stuff. But when we call people to the ways of the Lord, we're also calling them to the Lord. And we often see, we should see, hopefully in time we will see, how we fall short. The scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the prophets for us represent a great example of calling people to the ways of the Lord as we anticipate, and calling ourselves to the ways of the Lord, as we anticipate the second coming. This could be said of so many of the prophets. As they spoke, it was obvious who the phony people of God were. And the leaders who ignored them were phony too, as well as those who criticized them. Yet, in the prophets, we see a group of men who endured the hostility and criticism of people with great perseverance. In other words, people persecuted them, people criticized them, people mocked them, yet they continued to speak the truth of the Word of God. They didn't, they didn't let that stop them. Oh, they would have their moments, like all of us, we have our moments, but their general direction was to continue to produce you know, great messages according to the Word of God. Yet, and I know you get sick of me saying this, but until I get sick of saying it, I probably haven't said it enough. And I want you listening for it. Today's preaching has virtually no prophetic edge to it. I'm just, I was listening to this guy today. I don't know why I was doing this. I'm like, why do I punish myself with this? And, you know, 200,000 people had listened to, to this sermon according to the count on YouTube. What a bunch of gobbledygook. I mean, really, it was, it, it was just stuff. It wasn't really much of, of anything. And I wonder if the Lord is just sitting there going, that is such empty preaching. It, it, it wasn't about God at all. It was really just about you and what you could do and realizing your potential and, and all of this other stuff. Well, you might say, why is it like this? Well, the New Testament tells us that men are lovers of themselves, that we are 
self-centered, that we are selfish. It also says that, that many people have a form of godliness, yet there's no power. There, there's nothing about them. That's why we, we read, if you read the Christian news, about all these uh, different Christian leaders that, that are quite famous and they appear to have a form of godliness, and then we hear the way they're living when no one else is around. Why? Because they have a form of godliness, but there's no power. There's no power in their, in their lives. You know, it's, it's easy to see if you know what you're looking for. And that might sound terribly judgmental, so let me add a second thing. It's easy to see if you've seen it in yourself. If, you, if you've seen that you can be such a lover of yourself, if you've seen that you can be so self-centered, if you've seen that you can be so selfish, if you've seen that you can have a form of godliness, you can, you can be one way in church and you can be one way outside. You, there's no power it's easy to see. You know, sometimes people catch you off guard, but other times, you know, you, something happens to someone and, and people walk up to you and they go, I saw that in that guy years ago. Or how could they not know that was an angry man? Or that guy was a creep. Everybody knew he was a creep. Or that guy was lazy. Every, every, come on, what do you, how could you not know that? And this kind of stuff is, is epidemic in what we call the Western church, especially the church in America. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. Obviously, the, the core thing is sin that dwells within us. But, but we're marketed to get what we deserve. You ever hear those commercials that say, you know, come here and get the blank you deserve or get the, the something you deserve? I'm always like, oh, what a, oh. Horrible. I blame it all on McDonald's. They started many, many years ago. You deserve a break today, right? And so, but, but, you know, sometimes if somebody asks you how you do it, maybe you should say them better than I deserve, because we're all doing better than, than we deserve. And when we talk to people about about what they uh, deserve, what what does it what does it really do to us? It produces entitlement to us. In us, we think that we deserve this, and, and so we feel entitled to it. And, and, and the church even convinces us of it. Oh, you deserve this, or you have these God given rights, or, or, or you're entitled to this. God wants you to have this. And it's, it's a terrible way, it's a terrible way to live. And, and now, popular in the church is what, what I like to refer to as successful Christian living teaching you how to, how to live successfully. I'm, I'm all for success. I'm all for it. But I'm much for living for Jesus, not for individual, my, my life and my success. But when we talk about successful Christian living, that leads a lot of people to believe that life can be, and it can be, or it should always be, easy and comfortable. Just do this, just do that, and your life will be easy and will be comfortable. And then a lot of people come in the front door because of the church because they, they want to hear it 
But then just as quick as a lot of them are coming in the front door, where are they leaving? They're leaving out the back door because it didn't work for them. And when you try to talk to them about the good news, they're like, I tried it already. Didn't work for me. Didn't happen for me. Because as we said Sunday, God keeps his promises that he makes, not the ones that he doesn't make. Yet the Bible, to be honest, points to various types of suffering as a normal part of living. The prophets, they, they suffered. The people killed them. Some of them were sawn in two. And, and it's a normal part of living. I'm not talking about being sawn in two. But suffering is a normal part of living this side of glory. And, and then to prove my point here, the Lord, the Lord points to the prophets. And look what he says at the end of verse 10. This is very interesting. He says, an example of suffering and patience. Let me, let me ask you this question. Would you put those two words together in a sentence? Would you put those two words together in a sentence right next to each other, joined at, by the word and? Suffering and patience? I mean, would you put those two together? But apparently, it's possible. Apparently, it's possible to suffer and to be patient while you are suffering. This is so, so very important to where we are as Christians and as Christians who hold the Word of God and the principles of God's Word very, very dear to us. This is very important to where we are today and how we see the world. Because here's the truth. What we are experiencing today, and it is in hyperdrive right now, we are not, we are not, we are not the first group of followers of Jesus to experience these things. Please remember that. Whenever people start going, oh, it can't get worse than this, it can. When people say no one has ever experienced these things before, they have. Experience what? People have, have experienced pandemics before. People have experienced persecution before. Followers of Jesus have, have experienced censorship before. Followers of Jesus have, have experienced living in a world where unbiblical, anti-Christian cultural values ruled the day. In fact, that last sentence, you could say, was what the first century church came to being in. I am not saying this is easy. I am not saying it will be easy. But I am saying it is not 
new. It is not new. And if you don't believe me, go to the book of Hebrews and ask the great cloud of witnesses. They'd be happy to tell you. Read the stories of, of all the people who went through such difficulties. And I can tell you this, because I've seen it in operation in enough people over time. If all we are doing is grumbling, if all we are doing is either coming to church, uh, reading some Christian book that tells me a bunch of stuff that may or may not be biblical, if I'm just watching sermons on YouTube or something like that. In other words, if all I'm doing is grumbling and consuming religious goods and services, this period of time is going to be very long for you. Even if Jesus comes back in a year, it's going to be the longest year of your life. Because that's not the way Jesus wants us to live. James is telling us that the prophets didn't wait for the suffering to end to serve the kingdom of God. The prophets didn't wait for things to get better to serve the kingdom of heaven. And I do hear from a lot of people that say, I will serve the Lord when things get better. I will come back to church when things get better. Now, there's legit reasons for some people. Other people don't have legit reasons. You have to search your heart. But a lot of people are saying a lot of different things that they're going to do when things improve. What are you going to do if things never improve? Take the example of the prophets. They served despite the poor conditions. But the Lord is also teaching us that difficult times does not make serving Him impossible. It doesn't. We can serve Him in the most difficult of times. So what is James doing here? I think this is a call to serve. I think he's using the prophets as an example of saying, look at how those guys heard the call to serve in tremendously difficult times, and they heard the call and they went. Jesus said, drop your nets, follow me. And that's what he's calling you to tonight, friend. That's what he's calling me to tonight, friend. It's a call to serve. This is a call to serve God in a variety of ways. It may be a prophetic call to say some things to people, including our own brothers and sisters, that they may, in Christ, that they may not want to hear. This is a call to ministry that for all followers of Jesus will no doubt have a high personal cost. It cost Jesus Christ his own life so not only is this a call to serve, this is a call to persevere, to perseverance in our service. 
Verse 11. I want to read it twice. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So let's, let's read it again. So last week we talked about the farmer and his patience. Then he just talked to us about the prophets. Now he moves us to a third, really, a third and a fourth example, if you will. He says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Another version says, we count them blessed who remain steadfast. Another version says, we count them blessed who persevered. Let's just stop there for a second. We read our Bibles. We read about these men and women. And we see what they went through and how they endured and how they persevered and how they remained steadfast. And what do we do? We don't go, oh, poor them. We don't do that at all. We count them as blessed. Then he says, you have heard of the perseverance, uh, some versions, steadfastness, endurance of Job. So he assumes that you and I know something about the book of Job. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. And seen the end or the outcome or the purpose intended by the Lord. We, he said, if you know the book of Job, you know what the Lord intended to do in Job's life and eventually brought about in Job's life. And then he adds that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So he begins with, we count them blessed those who endure. We count those blessed the people who endure in faith until the end. In the midst of incredible difficulty, in the, in the midst of incredible hardship, we know that they now live with the Lord. We now know that they are blessed. And here's the thing. When we, even in, in, in the secular world, when we hear the stories of the people who triumph over adversity, we love it, don't we? When we, when we love to watch movies or hear stories, we admire such people. We're like, man, look at what they did, the trouble that came to them, and, and man, how they rose above it. They got above it. Oh, man, I admire them. If they're Christians, man, those people are so blessed in the way they lived. So can I ask you a sobering question? Why are you so, so surprised when it's you who suffer? Why am I so surprised when it's me? Shouldn't be. It's just my turn. It's just your turn. You know, trouble comes to all of us. So let me ask you, don't you want to be one of the people who rise above it? Don't you want to be one of the people who others look and say, man, that guy's blessed the way he dealt with the trouble that he has. Now, when we talk about blessed, I know a lot of times in the Bible, people substitute the word blessed for the word happy. I don't, I don't see how that fits here at all. 
Happy is, as we think of happy, is an emotion. Blessed, I think of more here as being, these people were right with God. They were right with God. People, people would have looked at them and thought, how are they still walking with God? How are they and all that they've been through or all the sickness they have or all the loss that they've had or all the trouble that they've had, how in the world could they possibly still walk with God? They can because they are blessed. And James is probably talking about those who are faithful to the end. And they will not only be blessed in this life, but they will go into the next life and they will be blessed. Now, I know these days many of you have been telling me that you're finding it increasingly difficult to discuss faith with people. Maybe a friend you were talking to before is like, you know what? I don't want to hear it anymore. I just don't want to hear it anymore. Or your family members are like, stop ruining all the family dinners and all this. Come on. Don't do that. Or maybe somebody you work with, they're like, you know what? <clears throat> I get it. Leave your Bible verse on your desk. I don't care, but stop putting them on mine. And, and I don't want to talk about it anymore. And you're, you're just, you're getting discouraged. Or maybe people are just flat out mean to you. Hold on tight, tight, tight to Matthew 5.11. Matthew 5.11 says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Take that, just in your, take your phone right now and, you know, shoot a text to yourself, Matthew 5.11. Jot it down on a piece of paper. And you got to hold on to that one tight. Now, remember we talked back in James 1.12 about blessed is the man who endures temptation. We may not want to hear it, but the Lord uses trials and difficulties to grow and deepen our faith. I think a lot of times we make the wrong assumptions about trials. We think, oh gosh, what did I do wrong? So back in the day, they don't say it so much anymore because people don't talk about sin, but they used to be like, maybe there's some secret sin in your life, brother. I used to tell people, well, there's obviously secret sin in my life because there's tons of sin in my life. I'm riddled with this stuff. I, mean, what do you, <laughs> I don't know if that's why this is happening, happening to me. So, but a lot of times we just, something goes wrong and people are like, oh, God's mad at me. God hates me. God doesn't like me. Instead of seeing in trials, in difficulties, the potential for tremendous maturity, growth, and blessing. Now, when, when trials are our fault, when, when we do something and it's, and it's just our fault, you did it, you knew it, and now you're suffering the consequences. A lot of times that's the Lord just teaching you about sowing and reaping. You know, if you sow to sin, if you, if you, you plant tomatoes, you harvest tomatoes. You plant corn, you get corn. You plant sin, you get the consequences of sin. But, but sometimes things happen to us that are just not our fault. They're just not our fault. Wrong place, wrong time. Or somebody stole something. Or just whatever it could be. Some mysterious disease comes out of nowhere. You're like, 
I didn't, I didn't do anything with this. The doctor goes, well, you know, it's in your family tree, your heredity or something like that. When it's not your, when it's your fault, God, again, it's sowing and reaping. When it's not your fault, God's teaching you about dependence. God's teaching me about dependence. You see, because, and I know some of these things are, when you're in the midst of it, are hard to hear. But the truth of the matter is that a life without trials, a life without trouble, a life without suffering will never, never produce the depth of faith that God wants to produce in you. It just won't happen. If I, ha if I have a life without trials, without trouble, God will never produce in me the depth of faith that he wants to produce in me. And so for a lot of us right now, maybe you haven't had a lot of trouble in your life, but right now, this past year or so, it's been tough. And what's happening? Is it causing you to get bitter towards God? Is it causing you to move further away from God? Or is it digging you deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, you may have heard of the patience of Job. A lot of people heard of the patience of Job. And I remember that expression when we went through the book of Job when we first started it. And I have to be honest with you, just truth be told, I was not convinced. <laughs> I was not convinced of the patience of Job. Job complained a lot. He complained a lot, but I was fully convinced of the perseverance of Job. He, he persevered in the most difficult of circumstances. And we said this about Job, and it's true about all of us, even, even in complaining. As long as you're still talking to God, you're in good shape. It's when you go dark. Now, sometimes God's going to go dark on you, and you're not going to really feel like you can hear from him. That's okay. That happens. But when you stop talking to him, that's when you're in, that's when you're in big trouble. So what happened to Job? So Satan takes a visit to, to God, and, he, and, he's, and God says to, uh, to Satan, Hey, you know my buddy Job? And, and Satan's like, Yeah, 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 yeah. He goes, God goes, There's none like him on earth. He's blameless, he's upright, he fears me, he shuns evil. Satan, <laughs> oh, come on, God, come on, get real. You know that he only, he only follows you because you bless him. He only likes you because you protect him. And then Satan says to me, let me turn up the volume a little on this guy's life. Let me, let me turn up the heat a little bit. And you watch. I'll flip him. I'll flip him. You give, me a, give me a little bit of time with him. And I, and I, and I can do it. And God said, okay. God signed off on it. That really means that, that, that any trouble or any suffering that comes into our lives 
because God wants to dig us deeper, God signs off on it. Now, I know that sometimes embitters people towards God, but God knows what he's doing, and he's willing to wait for us to come around. And so what happened? Job lost almost everything. He lost all his animals. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his kids. He lost all of his servants. And then his wife comes along. You think she would be wanting to comfort her husband and he would be wanting to comfort her. And she says, why don't you curse God and die? <laughs> Thanks, babe. Very encouraging. <laughs> Big help. Big help. But in the midst of Job's complaining, in the midst of his struggling, in the midst of his asking, why God? Why? He never abandoned his faith. He never abandoned his faith. Now, it seems to me, and I'm thinking in New Testament terms, he's a very, very old, Old Testament character. I'm thinking in New Testament terms that, that Job had a Holy Spirit empowered. Now, when I talk about being empowered by the Holy Spirit, when you put your trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. But we have to yield ourselves to his power. We have to let him empower us. And it seems to me that Job had this sort of Holy Spirit-empowered strength of heart and soul. He had a word we don't really hear used too much. He had fortitude. He was going to fight to, to continue in the faith. And so when it's, we talk about the patience of Job, I think the word patience is far too passive. So James does too. He uses the word perseverance. Once again, he wants to use an active word. What does it mean for us? Like Job, it means a determination to never abandon God, to never abandon our faith, to persevere to the end. Maybe right now, right now, you are tempted to abandon the faith. Maybe right now, God has preserved you. Whether, whether, whichever one you are. Maybe right now, you need to throw up what we call an arrow prayer, a quick prayer to God. You say, what's an arrow prayer? Well, somebody comes and asks you a question. And as they're finishing up the question, you're like, Lord, please help me not to say something stupid. That's an arrow prayer. Maybe you and I, maybe some of us need to shoot up a quick arrow prayer to the Lord and say, Lord, please, I'm asking you, just keep me to the end. Just keep me faithful to the end, please. Please. Look at, again, verse 11. He says, sort of at near the end, he says, and seen the end intended by the Lord. Let's stop right there. In the end, Job's life was restored. He had bad health too. And he grew deeper in his faith and his trust. Job learned, and Job serves as an example for us, 
that God has a purpose in suffering and will restore all things because he restored all things to Job. Now, this is the honest truth. I'm not going to lie to you about this. We, we may not always understand God's plan. Some of you are like, I never understand God's plan. I hear you and I feel you. We may not under, always understand God's plan, but I've come to learn this over the years. Just the fear, the sheer fact that I know that he has a plan has brought tremendous comfort and encouragement to my soul. So I've had to say many times to God, I know you have a plan. I know you know what you're doing. I know sometimes I think you don't know what you're doing. And I know you know that sometimes I think you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> we both know that I think that sometimes. But Lord, honestly, I'm greatly encouraged and I'm greatly encouraged that you do have a plan for me. It can also encourage us that as we persevere, we can know God more fully despite the adversity that often comes with his plan. And I know that's shocking to you that I might say that, 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 that adversity might come with God's plan, but, but it's the truth. Look at the cross. Look no further than that. Now, verse 12, it's hard to tell if it goes with the preceding verses or the next section, but we'll throw it in here. In preparing for the second coming, he says this, verse 12, But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Another version says, so that you won't fall under condemnation. Now, for a Christian, what does that mean? So you don't fall under God's displeasure. Now, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount had very, very similar teaching to this. Jesus was a little more detailed. So James has told us, we talked about it last week and this week, don't grumble, be patient. What is he saying here? Quite simply, be honest. Be honest. Don't grumble. Don't shoot your mouth off in your impatience, but be honest. Have integrity. Now, I don't think swearing is cursing here. Rather, I think what he's saying is, in difficult times, in, in difficult times, if you say you're going to do something, do it. If you say you're going to help with something, help. People should be able to trust followers of Jesus. We should be known for our dependability. Our word should be our bond. It should be, if that guy said it, you can bank on it. You, you may not like what he says, but, but what if, if he told you that, it's the truth. On our job, in the workplace, we should be known as truth-tellers. In the church, we should not be known as grumblers. 
We should not be known as people who want to join in the rumor mill. We should want to be people of the truth. We should want to be people who say, you know, that's not true. Years ago, years ago, we had someone call out a, a young person uh, who knew me from being in a small group, called out an older person and said, what you just said about our pastor is not true. He would never talk like that. I know him. He doesn't talk like that. And the person in front of a group of people admitted, you're right. He didn't really say that. I kind of redirected some of the wording. We should be people of the truth. Don't make a commitment to something and not show up. God has a calling on your life. Don't leave your calling for other people. God called you to it, not them to it. Another one that really hyper-spiritual people do. Don't tell people that the Lord told you not to do something that you said you would do unless it was a sin. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Don't hide behind the Lord and say, oh, I wanted to do it, but the Lord told me not to do it. That's blasphemous. I remember many, many years ago when the church was really just first starting out, we were so desperate for people to help out. And, and, a, and a children's teacher sends me an email on a Saturday night and says, the Lord told me not to come in and teach the kids tomorrow morning. What? The Lord doesn't want his little ones to hear the word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit's that disorganized that they couldn't schedule you on the right, you know, the right day or something like that. If you don't want to come, just say you don't want to come. But don't say the Lord told you not to come. I don't think the Lord is that disorganized. Like, oh, yeah, I had something else for you tomorrow morning. Skip the kids. Especially knowing the way Jesus feels about kids. Perhaps most of all, James is telling us here, and we just talked about this, we've talked about this in the life of Abraham, when the pressure's on, don't lie. And then, because when you lie, you have to keep lying to cover up your lies. See, when the pressure's on and we lie, or just in general, when we lie, what does that reveal? It reveals that we have a fear of God, a fear of, sorry, a fear of man, and not a fear of God. It reveals a spiritual amnesia and a lack of trust in God. Now, I do believe that many people have the best of intentions. Many people do when they make promises. But then they have second thoughts. Well, what do you do when you say you'll do something and you then have second thoughts? Well, the most honorable thing to do is to do it. Is to do it. The least honorable thing is what a lot of people do is they cancel at the last minute and they leave people in the bind. And they'll say something like this. You know, three months ago, I knew as soon as I said I was going to do it, I knew I wasn't going to want to. 
Okay, why didn't you tell me three months ago? <laughs> you know, in the workplace, I, I always enjoy it whenever, I shouldn't say I always enjoy it, but sometimes I'll meet someone and they'll say, oh, I, I work with one of you Jesus people. So I'll ask them, and I was a boss for a lot of years, and I had Christians that worked for me, and it, it, it's amazing how some of the same things still prevailing. It used to be a lot they used to preach on the job. There's not so much more of that. You don't hear much more about that now. But really, the two biggest knocks I've encountered over the years about Christians in the workplace is they don't keep their word, and they leave their work for other people to do. Or slash, they do the least amount to get by. I've heard some Christians say, you know, he says here, don't make an oath. I've heard some Christians say we should never make oaths. I think you're missing the point. If you're taking notes, Acts 2.30, God says he made an oath to King David. Well, if God makes oaths, then I guess maybe we can. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said that he made an oath to the people that what he writes is true. So then what's James saying? James is saying that in everyday life, keep your word. Keep your word. James is teaching us to stop with the half-truths that make us look good and others look bad. That's just a different form of being a double-minded man. So this section closes, we began with verse 7 and 8. Remember verse 7 and 8 said, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early rain and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So in verse 7, he says, until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Last week, he, we, our title of our message was, The Lord is Coming, Be Patient. This week it is, The Lord is Coming, Persevere. What's the motivation when times are tough? I mean, you can, you can try and pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Good luck with maintaining that for a long time. Good luck with maintaining an excitement in a Christian life for a long time in your own strength. What's the motivation? Well, look at the very end of verse 11. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Another version says that he is full of compassion and mercy. You know, one of the problems is we tell people, you know, God loves you. And they go, yeah, he loves everybody. So what? I mean, that's really how a lot of people feel. You know, they say, oh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You don't know what the plan for somebody's life is. You don't know whether they're going to think it's wonderful or not. Obviously, it is a wonderful plan, but you don't know how they're going to perceive it. You see, I think sometimes people think, well, God loves me because he has to love me. That's not what James is telling us here. James is telling us is that God has a deeply emotional, heartfelt love for his children. Now, 
people say, well, does that mean we're all children of God? No, we, we have to be adopted into the family of God by putting our trust in Jesus. How much, do, how much does God love us? Well, we see it on Christmas morning when God came so near to us that he actually became one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that kind of love, when you know God is, is merciful, when he's full of compassion, when he really loves you, when you look at the cross and you think, that should have been me. There's no other explanation for him doing that for me other than love. That kind of love internalized through the word of God and empowered inside of you by the Holy Spirit that loved ones will help you suffer well. That will help you persevere. Once again, it's always important for us to remember that God has a very definite purpose in our suffering. Once again, we see it at the cross of Christ. On the cross, Jesus reached out to us in mercy and compassion. When God gave his son to us on the cross, he was reaching out to sinners and saying, I want you in my family. Look at him. Look at him. Look to him and be saved. Look at Jesus dying for you. Turn from your sin. Turn to my son. Put your trust in him. God's mercy reached out to us by offering us the forgiveness of sins that were against God by having Jesus take the judgment for us. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it can be yours today. There is no need to wait any longer. There is no need to postpone it. Perhaps maybe you're one of these people. I got an email from a, from a guy today, yesterday. I never know. The days all go together. Yes, today. And right now on, on our radio show, we're playing my testimony. And, and, and he it was very kind. He said, I was so intrigued listening to your life, how you grew up. I didn't become a Christian until I was 29. He said, I grew up in the church, and I'm not so sure even now, he's a little older than I was, that I really even know God. Maybe you're out there and you're watching right now, and you once said yes to God. Remember, he said, let your yes be yes. But if you're really honest, you're, I mean really honest, you will say, I said yes. Mommy led me in the prayer. I said yes. I was at the youth rally. I was at the youth retreat. And they said, you know, hey, if you want to become a Christian, come forward or, or raise your hand or say the prayer. And I said yes. Or I was, I was dating a pretty girl or some handsome guy and, 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 and I knew they wouldn't go anywhere with me unless I was a Christian. So I said yes. But I'm being honest with you, Pastor Jim. My yes was a no. It never really was a yes. Tonight, 
Let your yes be a yes. A real yes. Not a fake yes. Tonight you can say, Lord, yes, tonight this yes is a real yes. This is not a no disguised as a yes. Today you can make your yes a true yes to God. And he will forgive you. And he will cleanse you of your sins. And he will give you a new life. And he will adopt you as a child of God. And then as a true child of God, as you wait for the second coming and you need help, the Lord Jesus will help you to be patient. And the Lord Jesus will help you to persevere. Well, let's pray.